Welcome to the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and I'm a former doctor turned lifestyle entrepreneur. Each week, I interview some of the best minds on the planet on the science of achievement and the art of fulfillment. Come take this journey with me. Excuses are over. It's time to live. If an idea comes into my head, I don't ask myself, can I do this? I say, how can I do this? So it's being super solution orientated rather than the problem. I'm like, okay, not if I can, it's how do I do this? It's that first part of getting your business together that's the hardest. It's like that zero to 100K is way harder than the 100K to a million. It's the setup. It's the foundation. I never want to give up on something just because of money or because of anything. It's like, let's figure out how we can make this work. There's always a solution. Okay, before we jump into this interview, I want to invite you to be considered for my 2019 Traveling Mastermind. So go to workhardplayhardmastermind.com and fill out the application and we'll jump on a call to see if you're a great fit. This year, we'll be in Boston doing lots of cool things like training with Tom Brady's trainer, Alex Guerrero. In the middle of the year, we'll be heading to Monaco doing things like vintage car rides through the French Riviera. And then we're going to wrap the year in Florence, Italy, doing things like truffle hunting and hot air ballooning over Florence. Look, Life is all about fulfillment, and I really try and walk the walk. So if you are looking to be part of our tribe of 28 high-achieving entrepreneurs that are in the six- and seven-figure range, fill out your application at workhardplayhardmastermind.com to be considered. So think of the mastermind as having two parts. The first is the trip itself. And the second part is what goes on over the four days within the mastermind. Our group of 28 entrepreneurs will help you brainstorm and accelerate what you want to achieve in 2019. And we'll do that through a variety of different exercises, brainstorming activities, breakout sessions, goal setting sessions, you know the drill. So go to workhardplayhardmastermind.com, fill out an application, and we'll jump on a call to see if you're a fit. All right, let's jump into today's episode. Today's episode is with Rebecca Louise Smith. In this episode, you will learn what having grit really looks like. You know, I have hit a point in my life where I realized that having grit will get you to your goal way faster than almost anything else. And Rebecca has that in spades. In this episode, I dissect all of the little inflection points in her life from being a poker player to make ends meet to how she's now training to climb Mount Everest. Like literally, she's training to climb Mount freaking Everest. So I'm so excited for you to hear this episode. Be sure to pick up her new book called, wait for it, It Takes Grit. So please enjoy this conversation I had with Rebecca Louise Smith. Oh my God, it is Rebecca Louise in the house. What's up, Rebecca? Oh my goodness, what an intro. I love it. Thank you. I'm doing great. Can I tell you something? You may. You are the first official Los Angeles in-studio guest. And I knew it was right when Rebecca reached out and she's like, 
why don't I just do it at your place? Here we are. It's a studio. It's a makeshift studio. I mean, it's not as it's not as fancy as the summit of greatness, uh, the uh, the the school of greatness, but it's uh, it's the studio. I love it. And I'm honored to be the first one in here. The first yeah. one in here. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk today about the science of achievement. Then we're going to talk about the art of fulfillment, which you know a thing or two about. And then we're going to wrap with some rapid fire questions. Cool? I love it. Let's do this. I'm going to take you all the way back to Eastbourne, England. Did I say that right? Eastbourne. Eastbourne, Mm -hmm. England in the 90s. What was that like growing up there? Ah, wow. Eastbourne is a seaside town. So it is full of everybody from England that wants to retire. Uh, so it's full of OAPs, uh, people in their 60s. What's OAP mean? Um, old, age pen- old age pensioner. <laughs> the Italians call it pensioni uh, or something like that. Okay. Uh-huh, yeah. And um, it was, everybody kind of went to school there, got a job there, stayed there. So it's kind of small town mindset. Even when I go back there, you know, people are like, oh my goodness, you're looking, you live in California, you must be famous, you must be around all the celebrities. Um, so it is, I loved growing up there. It's not somewhere that I felt like I belonged. I didn't belong there. Um, it was just a very, it feels like it's very slow, very slow paced of life, very narrow mindset, not like you can get up and go and, you know, achieve your goals. So very different to where I live right now. And your parents, were they married at the time when you were being raised or were they separated? Yeah, my parents have been together for, I think, like 30 years. Still together. Yeah, my parents are still together. Um, yep, they met when I think my mum got married. They got married when my mum was like 25. And they've been, they met in a nightclub in, uh, in Brighton, which is near Eastbourne. And they've been together ever since and still living together in England. I have this vision of like Austin Powers with like your dad just like, you know, on like a, a shag carpet airplane or something <laughs> like that. What, what was... What was your dad like and who are you more like? Are you more like your dad or are you more like your mom? This is interesting because everybody I've dated has always asked my parents that same question because they could never figure it out. Mm -hmm. And my parents would say, she's not like either of us. And I'm not really, I'm not like my mom or my dad. Um, my dad has worked for the same company. He retired earlier this year for 30 years, working a nine to five job, always turned up for every sport event that I had. Very supportive. My mom's um, a head teacher, loved her, loves her job. She's going to retire next year. And they just both kind of got married young, had kids, had been in the same job forever. So there is... They don't really understand where I get my tenacity or my drive from. The only person we can figure it out, I'm probably most like my mum's dad, my granddad, but um, he was an entrepreneur, but he was bankrupt. He went bankrupt 13 times. So I felt like he made all the mistakes for me to kind of be present and and be a successful entrepreneur. So he's probably the most likely, but he he messed up a lot. (laughs) Have you had the, I'm going to call it work ethic. We'll get into what I mean by that later. But have you had the work ethic that you have now all the way back when you were a kid? A hundred percent. There is no doubt that even I remember from being three years old and somebody trying to tie my laces up at nursery and me going, I can do it myself. And like, leave me alone, like I can do it. And I really feel like it's been in me from the get-go and it's just it's such a natural thing like working to me isn't isn't hard the work ethic thing is not it's not hard for me to work hard and uh and so I just think it's been something that's natural inside me forever and I'm yeah now it's just now it's just nature do you ever get tired 
that's, this, like just watching your Instagram exhausts me. Like, do you ever get like, oh my God, like I am in another country, I'm climbing another mountain, I'm building another business. Do you ever get like just, I think they call it naked, right? Is yeah, that, naked. Naked. No, I've never been asked that question before. No, I don't really think I am tired. I'm so excited about everything. Like when I'm going to a new country or there's something happening, I love everything. And so I think if you love what you do, you have energy because you're excited for it. So, you know, do I make sure I always get my eight hours of sleep in and, you know, I'm, I do rest, but I'm never, I never get to a point where I'm like, I am so tired that I'm so overwhelmed that I can't do this. I've never been in that. I don't, maybe I just don't let myself get to that. Or I'm just so excited by everything that's happening that really it just fuels me and gives me more energy. What time do you go to sleep at night? That varies. Um, I do like to go to bed early-ish. I kind of start getting ready for bed around nine because I want to be up at six. And it is important. I do need a good eight hours sleep. And okay. so I, I will get to go to bed early. I prefer that. Then I'm not like a night owl. I'm useless at night. I feel like I'm more productive and better in the morning. So I want to get up early. I want to be awake before other people are awake. And that makes me feel like I've got a good head start to the day. Yeah, me too. Me too. If I if I go to sleep at 11 or 12 o'clock at night, I'm fucked the next day. Yeah. It's like oh. just a, a disaster. It's like I feel like I'm hungover. <laughs> Sometimes I am. <laughs> yeah. Let, let's go back to uh, to England to Cavendish. Is that how you say yep. it? Yep, yep. Cavendish School. How did that affect your life, either for the positive or the negative? I know it was a challenge to get in there and I know it was a challenge for you to stay there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Cavendish was where I was at a high school. So I was there from the age of 11 to 16. And this school was actually, it was the school that I went to afterwards. I had to work my ass off to get into for the two years. But this other school, it was pretty rough. I mean, we got kids that have been stabbed from another school into our school. So it wasn't it was just a place of a thousand kids in like one school. So you just really did feel like a number. I got badly bullied there when I was like 13. People, I would come into a classroom and people would shout like anorexic and, and I wasn't anorexic at the time and bulldog underneath their breath. And I really just went into a zone of focusing on my studies and doing the the fitness and because I was playing uh, hockey for the South of England. And so I really just spent all of my time doing the things that I loved. And I would even skip school. I skipped lessons if I didn't like it because I was like, this is not going to help me in life. I remember having to go and do languages, doing German and like literally explaining to the teacher, I'm not going to do this because this is not helping me with my hockey. And the hockey is the number one thing. And I had this like mutual respect with the teachers that if I didn't do my homework, they weren't really mad. Because I feel like I was so open and honest about like, this isn't serving me. And then it almost felt like the teachers were scared of me in a way that they were like, well, we're not going to like push Rebecca. Like, you know, she's got, she's got things going on. So they were never really mad at me when I didn't do my homework, which was interesting. But it was, the, the, the kids there weren't excited to excel. You know, I remember trying to, uh, begging people to play in our hockey team and like running around in the morning, like just getting, just begging people to play. And because the kids there, they just didn't really, they didn't really care. They weren't bothered about excelling in something. And I think that's just because of the environment that we were in. So then the school that I went to at 16 to 18, I had to really, I had to get a scholarship to go there because my parents couldn't afford to send me there. And I remember my mom telling me this, if you want to go, you need to sell yourself. And that I think has stuck with me like for a long time. Like I had to go and meet with the head teacher and she was like, if you want to go, you have to show them what value you're going to add to their school. 
So I was like, I am going to be in all the, uh, in every sports team that you need. I'm going to get the best grades. Like I was selling my my spot. And so I think that has actually maybe in life shown me that if, if I want to get something, I have to show my value to other people. And so I was able to get into that school for two years and you know, it's, it's interesting. I, I worked so hard to get into it and I was actually bullied even more there and probably missed about six months of school. Um, I got down to like 86 pounds. I'm 110 pounds right now. So, you know, 20 pounds lighter. Um, but I came away with really great grades. I didn't come away with any friends, um, but I did come away with learning even more about discipline. Your, your ability to package your gifts and what you have is really, really impressive. And your ability to remain yourself is, is something that I really admire about you. Like you are exactly the same all the time. And that's just a huge compliment to give somebody. So how, how do you think that being bullied or growing up the way you did has allowed you to be able to sort of like walk into a room and make everybody in the room feel comfortable. I think that's what I'm trying to say. That's your, that's your gift. You're very, very good at disarming. That's the word I'm looking for. You could very easily be, you know, the hot chick in the room that everybody's like, oh my God, she's so beautiful. She's hot and make guys feel uncomfortable, make girls feel uncomfortable, but you don't. You are one who really I don't want to say one of the guys, but in some ways I feel like you could be one of the guys, but be one of the girls too. So, you know, with that sort of like long preamble, where do you think that came from? And how do you think, how do you think you developed that skill? I always feel like, you know, you, people don't remember what you said. They remember how you make them feel. And I always want to leave people with them feeling good about me. Mm -hmm. And I think that comes from, people are not making me feel good about myself. And I would never, even on my worst enemy, want somebody else to feel like that because it feels awful when you're not accepted or you know when you're being bullied. And so I, the last thing that I, I knew how that felt. And so I wasn't going to live a life where I would then project that on other people. And I think I really feel like that's one of my superpowers is is connecting with people. And I always want people to feel like they're on the same page as me or the same level. And I feel like sometimes we meet people, we're like, oh, they're, like they're just like up here. Like, I, I don't know if I could connect with them. But I, I feel like I now want to connect with everybody because I don't see myself. Maybe I just don't see myself as like the, maybe the Rebecca Louise that other people see, my, see me. Mm-hmm. Like that, I don't see that. I... I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm like amazing. I don't think I'm special. I think I work hard. And I think that because maybe I'm not naturally talented, that that's where I don't have an ego. I feel like some people who have like a really great talent, like it, it, it like they're, they get it. They have an ego about it. But if you've worked super hard to get to where you are, like that's just work ethic. That's not me being like, oh my God, I'm just so amazing. This, this is me just freaking knuckling down and working hard. And I think I don't have an ego about that. Have you ever read the book, um, Mindset? 
you would love the book mindset because everything you just described, you just described 300 pages in a book <laughs> in, in two sentences, that that's exactly what it is, that it's not that you view um, you know, some special power that you have, but you recognize that you can create anything, anything that you want as long as you're willing to do the work and knuckle down and create it. All right, can you take me back to the moment that you were packing your bags and leaving England and um, headed to London, not quite the States yet. Mm -hmm. Do you remember what was going through your minds and what you hoped was going to happen when you got to London? Yeah, I just finished a uh, reality TV show in England and I was I was honestly lost because all my friends or the people that I knew were either going to university, that's not something I wanted to do, or they were taking a gap year. And I decided that I was going to go and do this TV show in London. And when it finished, I didn't win the show, so I didn't get a job after it. When it finished, I had to come back home to Eastbourne. And my boyfriend dumped me on the last day of it via, he sent me a text. And this is the time where we didn't have an email on our phones. He sent me a text saying, oh, I've, I've sent you an email. So I had to wait until I got home an hour and a half on the train. Oh my God. And then on my 18 at the time, I've been with this guy for like a year and a half, you know, and I thought like he was the one, like, of course, well, that's right. what you do. And he sent me a text like, oh, you've, um, I've, I've sent you an email. I'm like, fuck, I've got to like wait for like an hour and a half on the train to get home so that I can read this email. And he'd, he'd sent me a whole email and he and he dumped me. And I was so lost that I feel like, and I really did hit rock bottom because I've been dumped. I didn't win this TV show. All my friends are doing this. It was like, okay, it was like I needed to go into fight mode. Instead of just being like, oh, poor me. I'm like, no, like I, I've got to like get back. I've got to get back to the Rebecca Louise. And I then just started reaching out like crazy to recruitment agencies trying to get a job in banking. And the only reason was banking was, and I don't have any, didn't have, I had like sport and art and this TV show. The, the banking was because the boyfriend who just dumped me had got a job working at Goldman Sachs. And I knew that like you could, you, they pay well. And I knew that there were loads of banks in London. So I wrote to like a hundred recruitment agencies, like three people got back to me and I got interviews at Bloomberg, HSBC and Citigroup. And the Citigroup one was the one that I took because it was the most money, like 27,000 pounds starting salary. I was like, this is, this is a lot of money. I, I, hit, I hit the lottery. Yeah. Yeah. And so I was like, I just needed to get to London. So I remember going up and getting the apartment and it was like opposite where he lived because I also didn't know anything about London um, or any of like the locations because I'd never, I've traveled up there a little bit, but I knew where he lived. So I literally moved in opposite, like opposite my ex-boyfriend and started working the banking. And he was like, what are you, like, I remember like bumping into him for the first time. He's like, what are you doing? Uh, I'm oh, like, it's oh, funny to see you here. Yeah, yeah funny. I'm like, yeah, I've actually got a job in uh, at Citigroup. <laughs> It was, a, it was, a, it was like, it's like I was getting back at him. I was like, I can fucking show you. Uh, you yeah, think? Yeah. I'm like, oh yeah, you're going to dump me and like, you're going to work in a bank and you're going to live in this swanky like apartment complex. Boom. Me too. And I was like, I think it was just like, okay, if he can do it, I can do it. And he had a degree. I mean, and his dad worked in banking. So I don't know where I felt like, oh yeah, that's fine. I can do it too. So I was just excited to get up there. And, and I remember like packing up all my bags and my parents helped me like move up there. And then I just, I just started working at a bank nine till five, had no idea what I was doing, but I just knew that I needed to be in London. I needed to get myself there um, because I wanted to go into like TV production or, you know, all those things that 
elements that I kind of got from the the show that I did. And I was just, I was so excited. I felt so proud. So look, one of the things that's fascinating to me is you don't think that you need X number of years of education or, you know, you have to sit there and analyze how you're going to get an MBA before you're going to apply to Goldman Sachs or whatever. You just fucking say that I'm going to get a job there and go after it. Like you don't even, there's like not even a part of you that says, do I need any prerequisites to be here? You don't, like you just do it. Like where, where does that come from? Like who does that? I, I, I don't, I don't know really. I think it's just, if I have an idea, I'm so excited about it. Do you just go I in? I just do it because the fear of not doing it is way bigger than the fear of doing it. I, I think it's like, well, and there's so much proof out there. If there's a guy that, yeah, he's got a degree. Maybe I don't have a good degree. I just have to maybe reach out to more recruitment agencies. It's just going to take me a little bit longer to get the job. But there is, if an idea comes into my head, I don't ask myself, can I do this? I say, how can I do this? So it's being super solution orientated rather than the problem. I'm like, okay, not if I can, it's how do I do this? Just how? And then you've, it's the puzzle of figuring it out. But what about when you come up against resistance where you, you do the interview and it and they say, no, you just keep going. You just keep going. You, because, you don't care. No, it's just part of it. Not everyone's going to say, not everyone's going to say yes. And I think, you know, even going through, I've gone to so many different castings for backing dancers, for other jobs. And like, I never, I think the thing is, I never expect to get something. What I was never, that? What, what kind of dancers? Uh, like, it would be in music videos. Ah, okay. And yeah, all things all the things. I just never expect someone to just give me something. All right, let's talk about that. So in London, you were everything from a poker dealer to being in a girl band. Mm -hmm. Why a poker dealer? And how did you wind up in a girl band? So when I was living in London, I worked for Citigroup for about nine months. And then I was like, you could train a monkey to do this job. I'm out. I'm not, this is not creative. This is not me. And I was doing club promotion at the side. So I was able to, I mean, I was, I definitely took a pay cut, but I then moved into a one bedroom apartment and I shared with another girl Mm -hmm. and I was doing club promotions. I was then starting to be in a girl band. I would go out and be backing dancers. I was a a dancer for like, uh, like ring girls and cage, cage fighting and like stuff. I mean, I was just your promotion girl, like trying to create a brand. I had the Rebecca-Louise.com from since I was like 20 years old. Mm -hmm. And so I've always been trying to create myself into something. I didn't know what it was going to be, but I was like, if I, maybe it's me and a girl band. Like I can't sing. I can't sing. They, they hired me or I was in the group because I could dance and I had a personality, but I couldn't sing. So they would turn my mic off and like, (laughs) and I was in three girl bands, (laughs) you know, but I was like that, even that didn't stop me getting in a girl band. The fact that I couldn't sing and I had singing lessons and I was still shit. I know I can't sing. and I've had so many lessons, but that didn't think about it. That's crazy. I can't even sing. And I got myself into a girl band. This is really, (laughs) all right. So now we're going to, now we're going to go to the next level, which is like, you know, it's one thing to being a poker dealer, another thing to being in the girl bands and an entirely different thing to get your commercial pilot's license. How the hell did that happen? So I'm 23 years old. I'm living in London and some kind of crazy stuff went down. Like there was a paparazzi shot and someone stole a a photo from my phone and it went to a national newspaper and 
it was just a really weird time. And I realized that this is not the environment that I wanted to be in. I was drinking, I was doing drugs. I was around people that just were not positive impacts in my life. And we had the uh, volcano ash cloud that happened in Iceland that grounded all of those planes. Yeah, I remember it. And I was standing behind my sofa and all this crazy shit gone down. And, you know, I was being paparazzied and it was just like, an icky situation and I saw a plane land on the news and I literally was standing behind my sofa and I went, fuck it, I'm going to be a pilot. That was literally my mindset. And so I go, right, okay, so what do I need to do to get my pilot's license? Like, it, I didn't even, I didn't even think, okay, should I just think about this? No, I didn't. It was like, right, I'm going to use the money that I, I sued the newspaper because for copyright issues. Yeah. So I was like, that's perfect timing because like now I've got some money. And I started researching and finding out where the best place was to do your commercial pilot's license. And I realized that it's cheaper to do it in America because uh, the schools are cheaper. You can fly more often because of the weather um, and you don't have like a landing fee. I mean, the gas is cheaper, all the things. And so the two best places to do it in America are Florida and California. And I've been to Florida before as a kid. We went to Disneyland and I grew up watching Laguna Hills on MTV. And I'm like, well, this is perfect. <laughs> this makes total sense. What was her name? Lauren oh. Conrad. She is, she's got a podcast. I'm still working to get on it. Um, mm. That will be, I think that is the day that I will die and go to heaven. If anybody um, has a connection, yes, reach you, out. You, I have to get on there because she really inspired, you know, the, the, the girl who lived in Eastbourne. I remember, I remember in my living room, I remember watching the show and the palm trees and driving in a convertible down Pacific Coast Highway and Laguna Beach and, you know, the whole thing. And I was like, that's great. I mean, I really like that. It looks really nice on TV. Yep. So let's go there. Yep. So I get to America and I'm part of this flight school. <laughs> I'm in a flight school. I'm like the only girl. It was a very Indian school. There's a lot of Indians who... Did you, um, from people from India who come over to this particular flight school. And so I just got into this realm or industry that one was so outside my comfort zone. I think I've been in a small plane once before. And then I'm in an environment where it's not female and nobody like looks like me either. And so that was really daunting. And I'm in a hotel and I've signed, I've paid up my money and I'm, you know, for the first part to do my private. And I was like, this is, I'm not sure what I've got myself into. And the flight instructor, the first day he took me up and he goes, do you like roller coasters? And I was like, well, yeah. And he started like doing like crazy stuff with the plane. And I was like, this is, uh, what, what am I doing? And luckily there was the a community bus that picked up all these people um, who were staying at the same hotel for all the different flight schools. It was like one hotel, Hotel Current in Long Beach. And uh, all the pilots would stay there when they're doing their training. And one day there was a British guy on my bus and he started talking to me about another flight school that he went to. And I was like, great, yours sounds awesome. So I, instead of quitting and being like, you know what, this is just not for me, I just changed flight schools. And then I was with a flight school that had better airplanes, had a better system and just worked out so much better. I mean, I lost a little bit of money in the transition, but I just kind of was like, well, I'm not going to quit. I just need to find something that, that fits me, that works better. So let me w walk this backwards for a minute. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to get into that brain of yours. So... You're in England, you decide that you want to be a pilot, fuck it, I see the commercial, I'm going to, or the, whatever you saw on TV, I'm going to do this thing. How much money did you have to put together to, oh, you had money because you had that settlement? I had a little bit of money. Okay. And then now you're coming uh, literally across 
the you know halfway around the world, let's call it, and you're in California for the first time. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I didn't know anybody. You didn't know anybody. So now here you are alone, and you're how old? Twenty three. At twenty three years old. You're around men mostly, I would suspect. Yeah, mm-hmm. that are around what age? Probably about ten years older than me. All right. So yeah. now, now you got now you got guys that are ten years older than you, and you're learning to fly a plane, but not just a plane. You're learning to fly commercial. Is that right? Yeah. So you start off in a small aircraft. And um, how long does that take? I have about I probably have two. I have two hundred fifty hours as a commercial uh, commercial. So you start off with your. Um, your private pilot's license. So you have to fly solo, yeah, which was crazy. <laughs> that, was, that was gnarly. I don't think I'll ever do that again. That's not necessary. And then, so that took me about three weeks because I was flying every day and I did it pretty quickly. And then I, then you go on to your multi-instrument, your multi-engine, which is learning with two propellers. So it's a slightly bigger aircraft. And then you'll go into your instrument rating, which you'll learn how to fly in clouds, in rain, in the dark. Um, and then you'll convert your license and get your commercial. Um, but you never actually fly a huge plane until you go to an airline. So after I did all of my practical stuff in America, I was still convinced that I was going to be a pilot. So I then went back to England and did six months of ground school to get my 13 ATPL written exams, which is basically like a degree in six months. You're doing shit like if you were at 50 north and uh, 30 east and you went 720 nautical miles, what long latitude would you be at? Okay. Like shit like that. Right. And I decided that it would be a great idea. And I was a class rep. I, was, I would host parties at the weekend and I'd make sure that everybody was on time. So did all of that. And then... The next step for me was to go and do, um, you have to kind of convert your license if you've done it in the US and you actually would have gone and done it, I think in Iceland of all places, which is funny because that's where the volcano ash cloud was. <laughs> talk about I'm like, now talk I'm going about, backwards. Talk and about then, full circle. Yeah, and then I was there last year at the same time that everything happened. And so then I was going to then go and do this conversion, but I was like, ah, I don't know if I want to be a pilot. So what... <laughs> And that's the side I, even though gone through all of this, done all my written exams, it was then like, do I want to be a pilot? And that was when I was like, okay, that's it. This is this dream. This is this thing stopped. And that was the end of being a pilot. So I never went to an airline to actually fly a giant plane because you don't get to do that in training. What was it about, what was it that made you say, I don't want to be a pilot? Was it the day-to-day that you knew you'd have to do and the life that you'd have? Or was it that you just lost your interest? Or was it that you just jumped into something that you really hadn't thought of? Yeah, I, d- I don't really think I... W- I've never been passionate about planes. Uh-huh. I've never been like, oh, like, you know, as a kid, I've, I've, I don't, they don't really bother me. I think it was like, okay, this is cool. I'm doing this, getting all the great and get doing this. And then it was like, okay, so if I convert my license, that would mean that I'd have to get a job in the UK. And I was like, I don't want to live in the UK. I want to live in California. And that was the biggest thing. Do you think that the school being in California is what led you to be here more than, in other words, did you really just want to go to California? And that was a a convenient excuse. Or were you really interested in being a pilot at that time? It was the pilot thing. I never thought, I was never thinking in London, I want to move to California. Uh Uh-huh. Even though that now I, uh, now I can connect the dots back. Like as a kid, I would watch the TV show and be like, that would be so cool. I love it. But I never was going, oh, well, I can... Because I didn't think of... It was California. It was the pilot thing. It wasn't America. It was the pilot thing. Then I did my research to figure out 
where I should do the training. Mm -hmm. And it happened that the best place to do it is in America. And then it went down to two places, California and Florida. And I've been to Florida. So I was like, I've never been to California. Got it. It could have been Zimbabwe for you. It could have been anywhere. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Do you remember, I was listening to, uh, there's a great podcast. If you have, if you don't listen to it, it's called The Drive by uh, Peter Atia. if you ever heard of it. And he's an MD and he interviewed a guy that was, he's a successful tech entrepreneur, but he was on the flight where Captain uh, Sully Sullenberger landed the 747 on the East River in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Do you remember about mm-hmm. that? He talked about it. I mean, this, this story was absolutely incredible. It gives you, gives you chills to talk about what it was like, but he, he tells the story and I'm, I'm curious to I'm curious for your reaction to it, but he tells a story of, you know, like getting on the plane, sitting on the uh, the flight, and then 90 seconds as he goes up, he hears a bang, and he looks out the window and he can see that the engine is blown up, and he's on par with the uh, the skyline of Manhattan, and he sees that the plane is turning around to land, and he thinks that there's a he knows that there's some kind of problem. And in the end, obviously we know the end of the story, landed on the East River. But when they went back and they interviewed the captain, he said, you know, if, if we were going 160 miles an hour, when we hit the, the, uh, the East River, we would have spun and, you know, tumbled. If we were doing 140 miles an hour, we would, we would have went into. So we had to do it exactly 153 miles an hour. And if I made a left and I tried to go back to LaGuardia, I would have taken out much of the New York skyline in my path. And if I made a right and tried to go to Teterboro, which was the next airport, I would have hit the bridge. So the only other place I had was the East River. And listening to that story of like how he made all those decisions, those micro decisions in that second, he said, I was training my entire life. He said, I believe that to truly be a pilot, you're never a pilot until you lose an engine. So I trained my entire life for that moment to be able to land on the on the East River. I mean, mm-hmm. like as a pilot, that's gotta be like, what the fuck? How did he do that? Yeah, it, like it's gotta be crazy. Yeah, that is, that's amazing. And, you know, it it is the, it's the fast thinking. You don't have, you know, especially in those types of situations, you don't have a second to think through like real scenarios. You have to start taking action straight away. And so to be able to do that, and I think there was a girl recently who landed on a freeway and she was a practice student. And it's like, you know, some people have got it and some people haven't. Like there might have been a pilot in that situation that wouldn't have been able to land on the river. I mean, there's definitely not, not everybody who had that skill. And especially with the girl who is in training still manages to land. I mean, that's amazing. So you're clearly not averse to risk. Would you consider yourself um, sort of an adventure junkie, adrenaline junkie? That's the word I'm looking for. Yeah, I definitely love physical activity and risk-taking. I'm not into real extreme things, although it sounds like I'm doing something extreme next year. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I I get fascinated and excited by new challenges, whether it's business, whether it's relationships, whether it's physical. I'm not like a huge adrenaline. I've never like looked at myself as like an adrenaline junkie, but I feel like if you look at my stuff, I do kind of come across a little bit like that. Uh, a little, you think? Um, <laughs> are you um, are you somebody who evaluates and assesses risk well, or do you just say fuck it, let's just do it? I don't think I really evaluate anything. That mm-hmm. maybe that's something I can improve on. I don't. I get an idea and I want to execute it like yesterday. Do you listen to your gut 
on whether or not you think you should do it? Or is it more like you, you got the thought bubble and you just jump in? Yeah, it's definitely a, it's definitely a gut feeling. I, I know what to say no. I know what's not going to get me excited. I know what's, you know, I, what I want to say no to. Um, I'm getting better at like with business things and ventures is like actually looking at them and spending some time really seeing like what the value is and what I'm going to get back. Whereas like before, even up to six months ago, like someone would be like, oh, like you should try this. I'd be like, okay, I'm doing this. Like more of like business things, like spending money. So I'm definitely better at that in the last six months. But in terms of like other ideas, like creating, you know, I'm now selling my house and I'm renting somewhere because, <laughs> you know, someone gave me the idea and said like, you know, owning your house is crazy. You don't want to put all your money into that. And I literally were like, yeah, that makes sense. And then two weeks ago, before that, I was like going to go and buy a, a more expensive house. And now I'm like, now I'm moving in in three days into this new new spot just because someone gave me, I, I think I take action really fast on people's advice. Yeah, for sure you do. And and you're right, by the way, you will do much better by renting a place yeah. than you will by owning it and living in it. Yep. It's just too expensive. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's crazy to do. Okay, God, there's so many different directions I can go in, but I, we have to touch a bit on what you are well known for. So we're gonna, we're gonna start with the exit Mm-hmm. Uh, YouTube channel. How did that come into your life? And maybe you can describe what that is. Yeah. So when I got to America to actually live and work out here, I waited for 10 months in the UK to get my visa. So I got an extraordinary alien visa. Don't you get- That's a thing? That's a thing. Extraordinary okay. alien. That's me. <laughs> I, just put in, I just put antennas on your head. Okay, yeah. go ahead. And uh, I got to America- and I, I was actually dating my flight instructor. So we were a thing. So I moved in with him and I just started going out for castings. And when you get over to America, you can't, your social security number takes a couple of months to come through. So which meant that I couldn't go out and lease a car. But I didn't want to wait to go out and go to LA. And I was living in Long Beach at the time. And I was like, I'm going to use my British accent. I'm going to get to LA. I'm going to go to all these castings. And so I had to rent um, a car because I couldn't lease one. And I'm so glad that I didn't wait around and procrastinate because I was renting a car within like the first week I was here. It was a bright red Fiat. It was a terrible car. And I remember going to LA the first time and getting like every single ticket you could imagine because the signs here don't make any sense. But in that period of me renting the car, I went for an audition to be on a YouTube channel called Exit. And so that just shows, do not wait around. You don't have time to wait until your social security number gets through until you can lease a car. What is the other option? Rent one, mm-hmm. daily renting. That's fine. I could still, I could do that. I think I had to put it, I don't think I was, was I even 25? I think I had to put it in my boyfriend at the time's name to be able to make it work. But I went for this audition and it was um, a workout channel. They've been going for about six weeks. And it was a guy and two girls behind who were doing like the workouts and they didn't like their host. They wanted to mix things up. Uh, I didn't have my personal training license. I always wanted to be a, a TV host and I was into fitness. So I went and they were like, okay, like do a workout. And I was like, okay. So I made up this workout and I was like talking through it and whatever. And they offered me the job and I got the job. It got paid $40 per episode. And I would go up to Culver City a couple of times a month and film workout videos. And I learned that my my one skill in life is talking and working out at the same time. And I'm really good. I like I can talk which is all not the way, not easy to do. Is I can talk all the way. I can't sing, but I think all of those <laughs> lessons that I had for singing on how to use my diaphragm 
was for me doing these workouts. What's the trick to it, by the way? I, this I don't know. I, I just have this this this. All, I'm saying all those techniques that I learned. I must have just been embedded in me, and it's. I can just do it. I, there must be something. I'll have to think about that because there's definitely something that I must do to be able to, because I mean, I can do, I can do a hundred sit-ups and talk the whole way through that's, and, and not, not even feel like it's not even, you like can't a, even hear the difference. It's a party trick. It okay. is a party trick. All right. So you're up to Culver City, you're shooting yeah. videos and then at some point you're like, hey, I can do this shit on my own. I don't need you. Well, we filmed for 18 months and they then decided that they didn't want to film anymore. And I was like, what? Like we're onto something. And I think it was at like, I don't know, 600,000 subscribers at the time. Now it's 3.2 million. And then they just, they stopped filming. And I think their goal was not to create a community and, you know, to help people. It was for money. So they were making all the residual income. I was doing the $40 per episode. And then they just stopped. And for about a year, I didn't produce any videos that were on YouTube. I was, I, I didn't feel like I could compete with the channel that I had built. I was also kind of hurting a little bit, I think, from that. And so I decided that I was going to make a, a subscription and I was going to close all of the videos and it was going to be a monthly subscription to have my new workouts. And after about a year, you know, someone said to me, you know, you need to get yourself out there. You need to like, all this content is from closed doors. Like to be able to build and grow, you need to, you know, step into having your own channel. So yeah, I just took the subscription down. I let all of the content go. And so it's been uh, five years now since I've had my own channel. We're just almost at 600,000. And so it was the belief that I could do it again even though this time was like on my own, but it was the amount of people that kept asking for more workouts that gave me the confidence to do it. Which is how you ultimately wound up with your current company, yeah? Yeah, yeah I own it now. Now it's mine. But but Exit, so did yeah. you buy Exit? No, they wanted to, they were, I was trying to buy it from them, but like they wanted like, I wanted like million dollars. And like, I didn't, back right. then I didn't even have my rent. Was it even alone. worth it? Um, I, I don't know if it would have been, a smart, I, I, I try to get investors. I tried, I try to get, I even offered to make new videos for them for free. Like I had every single manager that I had try and reach out to them and, and collaborate and do something. They just were not interested whatsoever. Um, and it took me about, I would say three years to really let it go and not contact them anymore. So I was contacting them over and over again to try and build some relationship with them so that we could work together. Um, but ultimately, that just wasn't the right path. You know, it's interesting. If I, if I did my research right, one day you took a $150 camera, went to the beach, and you're like, screw it, I'm going to start shooting some videos, right? Is that how it happens? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So now you create these videos and now you have how many followers? Uh, probably across all platforms, over a million. Okay. And would you consider this m like a mission-driven thing where you're just, like this is this is one of the missions in your life to be able to create videos or, or how do you hold that? How do you hold what you're doing with this? Yeah, I think I was so affected growing up and suffering with anorexia and body image and you know even walking into a gym and like staring at a piece of equipment and being like I don't know how to use this and not feeling confident to work out and then just the demand from people saying that we really like this it made me feel good mm -hmm. and it made me feel like I had a purpose and so every single time that I, I released a new workout video on YouTube every single Monday for five and a half years I have never missed one ever 
because I feel like I have such a duty to my audience mm-hmm. and to people who are wanting it. Like I, I, there's no part of me that would be able to be like, okay, yeah, just this week, it's just not going to work out. I mean, and I went through a divorce, went through other things. Like we've all got shit going on and I still made sure that I got those videos up. You know, it's interesting. I, I guess for the people that are listening who, you know, are starting out, uh, you know, if you think about one day you decide you're going to shoot this video, right? And then here it is maybe, how many years are you doing it now? Five. Five years later, you know, you and I are in Italy and we walk into Gucci, uh, the Gucci uh, Museum and the girl who's going to give us the tour of the museum is starstruck. And she looks at you and she's like, oh my God. And we're trying, I'm trying to figure out because I'm, I'm hosting the, uh, the event and I'm sort of like running around. I'm trying to figure out why she is freaking out because I met with her before that and she wasn't freaking out, but now she's freaking out. I'm trying to understand like, what is the reaction? And it's because she's been doing your workout videos for years. And now, you know, here you are in Florence, Italy in a random Gucci museum. And you have like, you know, one of your, one of the people that are doing your workout standing right there. That's got to be such a great feeling for you to travel. I know this has happened to you before. It's got to be such a great feeling for you to go like, holy shit, you know, here I am, come up with this you know, stupid $150 camera on the beach, shooting these workout videos. I got this party <laughs> trick where I could talk and work out at the same time. And now I'm in Europe and I'm bumping into people that are like, oh my God, I've been doing your videos for years. That's got to be crazy. It is, it is weird. And I'm, I don't think I really like let it sink in because it has happened to me quite a few times and people mm-hmm. get starstruck and, you know, it's happened in front of my parents before when someone's like noticed me. Oh, that's going to um, be cool. Which is really cool. Um, but it's, yeah, I I love it. It's really nice that what you're doing is actually making a difference in people's lives and they're so excited to see you. And I always go, or if <laughs> I think in my head, I'm like, God, if you if you knew the real Rebecca Louise, like I'm not, I'm not that cool. That's why I say, I'm like, I'm really not that cool. Like your reaction is way more than what it should be. <laughs> and that's how I really feel. It's like your reaction to me is like, oh my goodness, like you're Rebecca Louise where I'm like, I'm really not that, I'm not that cool. That's so funny. So there's an illusion that's sort of, not an illusion, but there's there's like this, this maybe story that they make up in their head because they get a snippet of your life, right? They just see the video, but there's so much more to you. I want to talk a little bit about grinding and working. So a lot of entrepreneurs today are, you know, they're, they're like all in with, you know, sort of like the Gary V mentality of like, let's just fucking work until blood comes out of our eyes. You know what I mean? Well, we set the goal to make a million, let's make 10 million now, let's make 20, let's scale it, let's get bigger. But all these other areas of their lives are largely ignored um, in service to that big goal that they're after. And I think the dark side of entrepreneurship is that you become very one-dimensional. You just are mostly focusing on work, but that's not what I see you do. I see you participating in um, like the work hard, play hard events that I do. I see you doing all kinds of other things that you know, frankly, have, you know, very little to do with work. We're going to get into in a second, uh, climbing Mount Everest, which, you know, certainly an entrepreneur would be like, I could be spending all that time working, right? How do you, I know it's counterintuitive, but how do you think about the other areas of your life that are not around work? And how do you use that to recharge yourself to come back to work? I think when you're starting any business, it's going to take 
a lot more effort than you even think at the beginning. And I feel like when I did first start, I didn't have that balance. I really was like so focused on getting my business like off the ground. And I feel like it's that first part of getting your business together that's the hardest. Yeah. It's like that zero to 100K is way harder than the 100K to a million. It's the setup. It's the it's, it's lifting the, the rocket ship off the ground mm-hmm. is takes all the momentum and the energy. Yes. And so I definitely, I would say for the first 18 months, two years, was just so focused on that. And and I neglected relationships. I didn't go out and have fun. Like I didn't do any of those things. And I think it's just because I was so in love that I'd found something that was working and I was getting momentum. So I was kind of enjoying that. Now I'm at a point where I'm more interested in a fulfilled life with everything. So that when I die, I'm like, wow, like I did this and I was, you know, I I did climb Mount Everest and I did go to that birthday party and all of that stuff because money is great. And I've just got to a point I feel where I can give myself that freedom. I felt like I deserve it now. Whereas at the beginning, I was just trying to get this thing off the ground. And now I'm in a place where I'm like, you know what? I don't have to work till midnight. Like I can go and have a glass of wine and, you know, I'm I'm more relaxed with my eating and my my working out and all of those things. So definitely at the beginning, I was way more focused, but now I'm about having a fulfilled life where I'm adding value to other people rather than just my bank account. Mm-hmm. I, I also see that, you know, in, in different entrepreneurs that they hit a point where they don't really need, in quotes, that much more money. Like, they got a roof over their head. They got a good marriage. You know, um, they've got they can buy what they want. But there's something that they're chasing, and there's something that there's some unfulfilled thing. Maybe it's a daddy issue. Maybe it's a mommy issue. Maybe it's a, a bullying. Like, there's something somewhere that they're trying to fill this void that they're not looking at why they're doing what they're doing and the beliefs that are around it. But you seem to be very healthy in that you've recognized that there's a season in your life to build, but there's also a season in your life to build and work on other things uh, simultaneously, Mm -hmm. which perfectly leads to this next area of your life that I can't wait to talk about, which is there's a thousand different ways I can ask this question. I'm just going to ask it as simply as I can. Why are you climbing Mount Everest? It was like a leading up of events. It's kind of like my whole life. This, this kind of, it's like I get these signs of what I'm supposed to do. I don't know who's giving me these signs, or where they're coming from, but it's a sign. And it's when I see it, I know that that's the thing. It's like the plane. I knew that I needed to go and get my commercial pilot's license. I don't know why. It just was the sign and that my gut was telling me. And so I went on a hiking uh, trip to um, the Himalayas last year. And on that trip was a guy called Kenton Cool. And Kenton at the time had summited like Everest like 14 times. And I always thought like, wow, Everest is like, that's, that's crazy. Like that, that's amazing. I never thought like, oh, I couldn't do it. I never had the burning desire. Like that's what I wanted to do. But when I met him, I was like, oh, that's cool. That's, that's interesting. And then that, that kind of left. And then I went to Norway last year and we did a, a 10 hour hike that was, it was basically like mountaineering. And I got back from that and just from like literally getting back into the hotel and how I, f- I felt like such a high. And it was a high that I would feel when, I've, when I was doing drugs. And I think that was the only other time that I'd felt because even in my business, when my app came out and when like, when other things, in, I've launched things, like I, I didn't, 
there was something missing. I didn't get that high that I was craving. And so I got back from that and I've just felt so, um, I felt so good. I felt so proud of myself. I felt like, I just felt on a high. And maybe it's kind of like what made me start thinking about it more. And then I was at a mastermind earlier this year and I always thought, well, if I did, if I did Mount Everest, it just, I'd just be too cold. That's, that was my only, I'm, I'm probably I'd just be too cold. Well, then what happens is we do the ice bath technique, the Wim Hof ice bath. And we have this amazing coach, Dr. Trisha Smith. She takes us through an ice bath and I just fucking crush this ice bath shit. And I'm like, that's not that cold. That's just my mindset thinking it's cold. And I was like, then I was, you know, then I started talking about this book. Um, I've got a book coming out. The book is called It Takes Grit. And I was, I'd already got my agent, but I hadn't got, I hadn't got a, a book publisher yet. And when I was in New York, and I think I was there with one of my teammates and it just clicked. I can't even, it was in May. I can't even remember what it was. And I was like, that's it. That's what I need to do. That's what I need to lead by example. The book is called It Takes Grit. I need to do something that is going to lead my audience. It's climbing Mount Everest. And, like, and I then started just telling people, I'm climbing Mount Everest next year. I hadn't even like got the contract or anything. And I was just telling people, oh yeah, yeah, I think this is what I'm going to do. So then I had, you know, the, then I was like, well, this is part of the book. This is, this is what I need to do to, to lead my audience. This is my it takes grit moment because I'm not outside of my comfort zone. So how can I relate to other people who are outside of their comfort zone? And right now I'm not. And that's basically how we decided to, to climb to the top of the world. And uh, that was, God, there's a million different ways I can go down this road. Uh, that was how long ago? That was in May. That was in May. So this is still within, you know, uh, still within the year. I mean, yes. this is not that long and ago. And the crazy thing is, as soon as I thought about it, I messaged Kenton on Instagram and he had, there's only one time of year you can climb Everest, which is in May. So when I was messaging him, he was on, he was on the, the summit. Oh, that's no coincidence. He was there. Yeah, that's no He's like, oh, I'm with another client. He didn't think I was serious. It's it's funny because like he had a couple of those. Oh, he got, always got a couple of potentials. He's like, oh, who's this girl reaching out to me? Yeah, right. Wanted to, he, 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 we joke about it now because I go, you really didn't think that I was going to be the one that you were going to be summoned to within 2020. And it was only because somebody, he, was, he, was, he did have someone for 2020, but it wasn't going to be the right fit. And so that person, he actually had a space open. And I was like, I want that space. And I hounded him because I don't think he felt like I was serious. So I had to be like, and he was coming to LA. He lives in England. I'm like, when you're over here, I want to meet with you. Like, I'm really serious. And I had to convince him that I was the one that you needed to pick because there was, there was a couple of people who wanted to do it next year. Yeah, I mean, I remember when you told me and I was like going, hmm, maybe, maybe she'll do it. I mean, like, I think it's a nice idea, but my guess is she's going to get into it and go, oh, this is fucking crazy. Like, I'm not going to do this. Anyone but- that knows me, We'll be like, oh, she's well, doing it. Right. Yeah, now, now, yeah. now, if you said to me, I'm, I'm going to Jupiter, I would be like, okay, I'm going to get a telescope and watch because I know you're going to Jupiter. Like, I know that you're going to do this. Okay. I remember when we were, we were in Italy and we were talking about this and you said, I don't want to read too much and study too much about climbing because I don't want the negativity to get in my head and I want to be able to you know, not start to taint my beliefs around this. Talk to me a little bit about how, when you think of things, look, if you want to, you know, if you want to become a vegetarian, you can go on the internet and find all the reasons why you shouldn't, or if you want to become, you know, the opposite of that. So there's reasons for anything, but you have a practice, it seems, to 
to create a bubble that's around you, keep the negativity out and only focus on what it is that you're after. Talk to me a little bit about how you think about things like that. Well, you can only make a real decision about something if, if you're doing it. You know, other people's opinions, that's, that doesn't make any sense to listen to other people. You have to figure it out yourself. I didn't do any research and ask anybody about being a pilot. Oh, what's the hours like? What is I did I didn't because it's just somebody's opinion. And I think that one moment in time when I was 15 years old and my ballet teacher, I wanted to do this other exam that was more difficult and you had to go up to London to do it. And I knew that she wasn't really gonna let me do it. And she said, if I get honors in this other exam, she will let me do it. I got honors in that exam and she still didn't let me do it. So I decided, I think from maybe there, that your opinion doesn't fucking matter. Like why, like that's just your opinion. And so I didn't never, I never got to do that exam because her opinion of me being good at something or not dictated the outcome. So why would I listen to other people's opinion because I'm not gonna get the outcome that I want. Yeah, and it also, their beliefs about it also colors, like you can have a completely different experience than they had because you're looking at it in a different way or at a different place in your life, et cetera. That's good. I'm going to take that advice myself. That's really good. How expensive is it to climb Mount Everest? It's a lot. Yeah, how much is a lot? So if you want to do it like in a group, maybe like six people, you're probably talking like 70,000. Uh-huh. Um, I'm doing it one-on-one with Kenton and we're doing a couple of trips before. So we've just done the Alps, we're going to Ecuador and then there's going to be two other US ones. So his fee is, he's obviously the number one in the world. At, like he's a guy, he's a mount, like a mountaineering expert. Um, so one, I've got to pay for the actual climb on Everest, but then I'm also paying for all of the other trips and then his guiding fee on top of that. And then I'm actually going to be having a videographer come up with me so that we'll be documenting all of the content. So, so soup, soup to nuts, what are we looking at? R- like rough numbers. We're looking about like 390. So, okay. We're going to call that a half a million because everything is always more expensive than you think. So a half a million dollars. Was there, was there a moment where you went, fuck this, I am not spending $500,000 to do this. Or was it the opposite? I'm going to find a way to spend 500000 Yeah, it's not can I, it's how. Like, how do I get this money together? How, like, how? One thing is I'm selling my house. Mm-hmm. Just just finding the solution. Like, yeah, it's overwhelming. It's like, and sometimes I'm like, oh, oh shit balls. Like, okay, like, where is the money coming in? It's, it is, it's like, it's, a, it's playing a money game. Like, the money is just like, it's just these random you're just, numbers. You're moving it yeah, around. Yeah, you're just like moving this money around to like make it work. And there's, you know, cutbacks here and making something else work here. And maybe we're working with more brands and, you know, we've, we're reaching out, we're working with a couple of brands as well for Everest. And so if they, you know, if, if we find the right partners, that's going to be great. But if not, that's no problem. There's, there's, a, there's always a solution. I never want to give up on something just because of money. It's like, or because of anything, it's like, let's figure out how we can make this work. There's always a solution. Yeah, for sure. When will your climb be? May. So I will so leave. You, it's actually going to be back. Okay, well, yeah. that's what you said. Yeah. It's, only, it's only May. So I leave on the 15th of April 
and then I'll be gone for five five weeks. Five weeks. Mm-hmm. I remember I remember carrying your bag when we were in Europe, uh, putting you into a taxi, and it felt like there was a body in the bag. <laughs> so I'm like, "What is in this bag?" And you're like, "Oh, that's my ice pick." I'm like, "You're what?" And like my ice pick, I'm going to climb now. I think you were going to the Alps. Is yeah, that, you're yeah. going to the Alps. So you left, um, you left my mastermind in Italy and jumped on a plane. So that means that you brought your ice pick to my mastermind in Italy into the hotel. So here you are, you know, I, I've got this like, you know, bougie, you know, Florence experience. And then you flipped from there. And I literally thought it was like two people. I come back. I look on my Instagram and you're in like the fucking top of a mountain covered in snow. And I'm like, who, like you're going from this like cute little skinny dress in, in Florence to like a snowsuit in the Alps, like all in the same week, you know, like it's, it's crazy. How much travel have you done this year? Oh, this year, I think I've done just in the last like two years, maybe like two, two and a half years, like 25 countries. This year, I've, I can't even remember. I've been to Bali this year. We did Monaco. What was really cool is that when we were in Monaco, I didn't know where the next of our event, your event was. And then you said Florence. And it worked out perfectly because I don't think Kenton, still at this time, he was not thinking that I was serious. And there was a little bit of back and forth because he was like, I don't know if I can get over to America. Let me know if you're ever coming to Europe right. and we'll we'll set it up then. Like only if you're coming will we do these climbs. It was a bit of a blow off. It, yeah, he was like, yeah, I could, I could feel it. And then when I heard that it was in Florence, I texted him immediately and go, oh, I'm actually going to be in Europe <laughs> here. And he's probably thinking, oh, fuck, she's actually coming I, here. I can't get rid of this yeah. bitch. <laughs> can't, can't get rid of her. And like, it was perfect that I then joined that mastermind because I don't feel, and then it, I remember it was, a Friday, it was a Friday night and you're like, oh, I found out the next one's in Florence. I'm like, yes, I'm going to be in Europe again. And that is when, how that whole trip kind of then went from, you know, being in Florence and doing all of those bougie things and cunning for truffles and drinking wine in Tuscany to right. a four hour climb, like no makeup on, like hair is like frozen, like got icicles in it and I'm soaking wet, but I just love the the variation of it. I mean, crazy. I want to touch a little bit before we start to wrap up on uh, masterminds. So this year, um, as, as everything is Rebecca Louise, you didn't do one mastermind, you did two, right? Most people are trying to figure out how to get together to to make one happen. You made two happen. How has, um, the mastermind, uh, whether mine or, uh, you're in Lewis uh, house's mastermind as well. How has, um, being in a mastermind shaped you this year? It has changed everything. Last year I was, building my business from my home, my couple of staff. I didn't, I didn't really have like friends who were entrepreneurs. And I remember listening to a podcast that uh, I think Lewis Howes was on Rachel Hollis's. Mm. And I had never really listened to podcasts before, but I was, I launched a podcast in January. So I was like, I should probably figure out how to do this. And I went and followed him on Instagram and he messaged me and said, congratulations on all your success. I was like, this is so rad. Like, I didn't know who this Lewis Howes was, but like, whatever. And then I'm scrolling down and I see that he's got this video about masterminds. And I hadn't even heard of a mastermind before. I knew that I needed something to take my business to the next level. I didn't need to go to a motivation event. I'm already mo- I'm motivated. I needed like tactical help. I needed, I needed to be around other people, but I didn't know what the thing was called. 
And so I messaged him. I was like, hey, like, what is this thing that, you know, you're doing? I think it was like the November time. And he was like, you know, it is a big investment, but like, I think you'd really benefit from it, blah, blah, blah. And so I looked into it and I was like, I just got a job for, I was working for a big brand and the money that they paid me was like 5,000 short than what the mastermind was. I'm like, that's it. Done. And I think within like the week, I had sent over my full amount of money to him. And I don't think I'd had a call. I mean, I had a call with him. I don't think I'd had a call with him yet. But then we got on the call and it, just from the first session, I knew like that was the route. I needed to be in this room. I needed to be around other people who were doing what I was doing so that I could bounce ideas off. You know, because you know, in my family, I'm the, I'm the one that, you know, kind of runs everything. And even in my relationships and, you know, my staff, you know, I'm, I'm the one that needs to pick every, we need to, we need for, for us to grow, I need to grow myself. And so learning from those people and building the relationships and just honestly, like friendships of people in who are thinking the same as me, was like, that's the biggest thing. Because then I can go to someone, can ask them what they think and we're just going to have that same conversation. And so it has been a journey. Like this last year, I've spent more money on things than than I ever have before. Um, but I've learned so much. And, you know, I'm, Lewis isn't doing another one right now. Um, this is going to be his last. So it's so sad for that. But then like, you know, finding your one, which was from his mastermind, like Chris Harder kept posting there. I was like, this is what I wanted. And I was looking for a retreat. I was looking for a retreat to go on like a a yoga retreat with workouts and exercise, but I wanted to be around high level people. I was literally going like, I was searching for things. And then that thing, yours popped up. I'm like, that's perfect. Like that's exactly what I was looking for. Um, and it was even better than I could even imagine. And so now all of the relationships that's come from that, I think just building my network has been the biggest thing in the friendships and the connections that I've had from people from this year. Just like making myself known, not in a, like an egotistical way, but like being part, you've got to, you've got to play with the players. Mm-hmm. You do. I feel, like I'm in, I feel like I'm in the cool group. I was always at school, me and my best friend, the cool group would be about six feet away and we'd sit kind of close to them and like feeling like we were in the cool group and a few times we got invited to the parties, but we weren't really, we weren't in the cool group. And so I feel like every last year I was kind of sitting like on that edge again, trying to get into the cool group. And now I'm like hanging out with you mm-hmm. and Lewis Howes and like all these people. I'm like, who the fuck am I? You know what's so funny about this? Like for people listening, I want you to think about this. I, you know, I was fortunate enough, Lewis and I have been friends for a long time and I was fortunate enough to be in Greece with him and Chris Harder and Lori Harder. Uh, for those longtime followers of the show, they know who they are. We talk about them a lot. And um, we were just sitting in in, uh, in Mykonos this year, uh, 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 two years ago. And, um, you know, Lewis and Chris are like, dude, you should, you should create um, a mastermind. And that was the spark of it. And as a result of me, you know, taking action on their recommendation, their belief in me, I decided that I was going to do it. And now here we are together. So, you know, in the same way that I told the story of, you know, you with a $150 camera on the beach and then being in, you know, Europe and running into a fan, like you have no idea what the seed of something is going to, you know, come out later on in life. What are some things that you do that people disagree with or think you're crazy? I think those people would disagree with me climbing Everest and thinking that that is a good thing to promote a book. Um, I'm, I'm very PC on my my fitness channel. I've always been like the cutesy blonde, not like very appropriate. And 
you know, the reason that I started my podcast this year was to have my other voice come through because I am British and I do drop F-bombs and I'm incredibly inappropriate. Like I need to get all my staff to like sign something that they won't say anything. But like, I'm so inappropriate with them. And like, unbelievably, like I, sh- I would like get sued. Um, but I'm, you know, I hire the, the right people that, that fit with my mold. And it was interesting. I got my first like negative review on my podcast a couple of days ago. It's like, oh no, I don't feel the need that she needs to like drop these like F-bombs or whatever. I'll be leaving. And I'm like, I wanted to reply back saying, okay, goodbye, motherfucker. Mm-hmm. Like, I was like, I feel so like authentic in myself because I'm not trying to be this perfect. I don't want to be vanilla mm-hmm. and I'm not. And I think just opening up your, who all of your voices are has really helped me this year in just being more comfortable with myself and not feeling like I have to be this perfect person who's curated. And I felt fucking boring. Mm-hmm. That's how I felt well, vanilla. Because it didn't represent all of you. You know, it's interesting. I, I You know Shalene Johnson, the name sound familiar yes, to you? Yeah. So I remember once she was talking about how exactly what you were talking about. And she said, you know, I look at it this way. I look at like I'm driving down the road uh, in my car. And she goes, I like to listen to dirty, cursing, gangster rap. And if you're in my car and you don't like to hear it, get the fuck out of my car. Mm -hmm. And so she said, I drive down the road and I open the door and I fucking kick people out of my car. But who's left in the car is the ones that want to listen to the rap that, and she goes on to explain, like, I like Real Housewives, but I'm also a Christian, but I like rap. And so I like all of Mm. these things and I want the people in the car who like those things because those are my people. Mm -hmm. And I love the fact that you're uh, doing that. What is your uh, favorite podcast? Favorite podcast is actually Girls Gotta Eat. It's a Mm. comedy one Mm -hmm. and it's fucking hilarious. Girls Gotta Eat. Girls Gotta Eat. It's comedians? It's two comedians, two girls. They have blown up. And, uh, you know, because, you know, I'm around personal development and everything all the time. Sometimes I'm like, I just need to want to laugh. And they are, they're brilliant. Are there any positions or opinions in the last few years, or it could be way back, wherever you want, that you've substantially changed your mind on where you're like, you know what? I used to think that way. I don't think that way anymore. Is there anything that comes to mind for you? Feeling that I needed to please everybody. Mm, Like a big people pleaser. I want people to like me. And I think that's why I was so maybe vanilla. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm still, you still see my personality in like my, in my YouTube videos. You know, I definitely, there's more. I mean, you've hung around with me. Mm -hmm. Like there is definitely more, but I feel like. Oh, there's more. There is, there is more. (laughs) There's a whole. Actually, actually, I had to cap it because I didn't want to see how much more there is. (laughs) And uh, yeah, I feel like, just not worrying so much about pleasing everybody, making sure that everybody's happy. Yeah. Because I'm like, oh, it's so hard not to just be yourself. Yeah, you can't, you can't. What's what? What's one goal that you thought, when I achieve this, like my life is going to be freaking amazing. And then you got it and you're like, that didn't do it. I don't think I've had that moment yet. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like- Probably because you go after things that really excite you. Yeah. So when you get it, you are excited. Yeah, yeah. I feel like, you know, I when, maybe when my app came out, I was, you know, the, the thing is when you're launching something new, like you're so excited in the build up to it. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I'm sure I'm going to have way more fun climbing Mount Everest. I'm going to get to the top and be like, all right. But the fun part was actually the climb. Or the training up, up uh, the, until the, the climb. The training. So mm-hmm. I feel like, you know, it's, 
it's enjoying the journey mm-hmm. of it and having all of that be exciting. So that's the, the joy. That's really the joy of it is mm-hmm. the creating of it. Like mm-hmm. the, when you get there, I'm like, okay, but it's, it's not like, where's the, the fun is in the journey. I remember you, you made me think of a memory. I remember being in the back of a limousine. I don't even why I was in one, but I was in the back of a limousine on the way to a party. And the lady that I was with said to me, you know, honey, she was an older lady. She says, you know, honey, the fun really is putting on, putting on your makeup and getting dressed and getting ready to go to the party. It's not really the party. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's a hundred percent that. It is a hundred percent. It is. Then you get to the party, you're like, "Oh, go home now." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, if you could spend one month anywhere in the world, where would it be and why? I think it would be oh, the first place that comes to mind is actually the Maldives. Mm. I feel so aligned and calm there. I think it's the atmosphere, it's the colors, but I just, uh, I love the islands there. You can walk around them in like 30 seconds and you just feel like you're in the middle of nowhere. And yeah, if I had to be a month somewhere, I love the Maldives. Mm -hmm. What would your friends say is one of your superpowers? Oh, what would other people say about me? That's my superpower. I think, uh, I think making people feel at ease. Mm-hmm. I would agree. Um, what's your guilty pleasure? Gin and tonic. <laughs> we'll, we'll, I love be, that. we'll be drinking. I, <laughs> yeah. I love that. I love that. All right. Last question. Uh, let's change it up a bit, a little bit. What one question would you like to ask me? Oh, okay. One question I want to ask you is if you had the choice right now to live in California or Italy, what would you, that be? You picked the hardest fucking question. <laughs> I know. Because here's the, here's right the problem. It, in this moment, it would be California. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the reason for that answer is because I've always wanted to live here and I don't want to move and always wonder what it's like to really live here mm-hmm. all the time. That said, everything that is here in California that I love, like we're a you know, couple blocks from the beach, the weather, the, my friends are here and all of the things, you know, I'm taking volleyball classes now and surfing classes and all of those things. None of that's Italy. Mm. When I'm in Italy, it's food and fashion and fun and, and culture and art and blah, 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 blah. None of that's California. Mm. And I get two completely different things that are soul fulfilling that I don't get with the other one. Mm. So if I didn't have a five-year-old that was in school that I'd have to manage school with, I would absolutely do six months and six months. Mm-hmm. Yep. I would have one foot in Italy and I'd have yep. one foot here because I need both, both of it. Well, do you have any final words, suggestions, or an ask for the people that are listening? Oh, yeah. I mean, just follow along with the journey with Everest. It's going to be all up on the website, uh, rebecca-louise.com. There'll be an actual page that will be Everest. So you can just follow that. And, you know, whatever your goals are for 2020, like have your own Everest. Have something that you want to achieve, overcome, get to the summit of whatever it is that, you know, that that you want to be part of. Um, And then I do have a book coming out in August. It's called It Takes Grit. And uh, there's pre-sale up available right now on Amazon. Dude, you're amazing. I'm just going to leave it right there. Thank you for coming and thank you for doing this. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game 
or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live. 